Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Support growing for a federal paid leave program. Meanwhile, new data on women in the workforce. And today on the show, what the SAFE project is all about. And how about this? Another win for the UAW. Welcome to the Wednesday, November 29th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. I'm going to start things off with a newcomer. His name is Jeff Horvitz. Jeff is the chief executive officer of an organization called the SAFE Project. And SAFE stands for Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. And I'll tell you, this guy's got some incredible credentials. He served in the military. He's a retired naval officer. And he's also an attorney. During his military service, Jeff served in multiple positions, including, how about this, general counsel of the White House Military Office, command judge advocate on board the USS Harry S. Truman, counsel for the commander, U.S. Naval Forces, Northern Europe, and United Kingdom as the director of the Navy's legislative program. He retired almost 10 years ago, 2014, then became the first director of development for the Penn State Law Program, as well as Penn State University School of International Affairs. He worked for a brief period as the director of strategic planning for the Milton Hershey School, and that was before joining the SAFE Project in April of 2018. And like I said, he serves now as chief operating officer and Jeff comes here courtesy of Pete Almini. Pete Almini, of course, heads the labor management trust of the heat and frost insulators. And throughout the course of the year, we have touched on the problem of addiction. We did a whole, whole bunch of shows on this during September because uh, September is uh, classified as recovery month and uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, Suicide Prevention Month, all those bundled into one. And the numbers are astounding. Over 100,000 Americans lose their lives to overdoses each and every year. And this is the highest number of Americans lost to overdoses ever recorded. And to overcome this epidemic, well, it requires collective action, and that's where the SAFE Project comes in. So we'll talk about how the program is working and how effective it's been. And we'll get into the specifics here. The stigma, the major barrier to people getting help for substance misuse. Fentanyl, which is the potent synthetic opioid that's been contributing to the rising number of overdoses. So what do families, what do employers, what do labor unions need to know about the role of fentanyl? Also, naloxone. It's my understanding Jeff is a big proponent of naloxone, which is now approved for over-the-counter use, why this is so significant. So lots to cover, very important issue. And you think about this time, especially with the holidays uh, between Thanksgiving and, uh, and Christmas. There's a lot of isolation, a lot of people suffering from mental illness issues. 
and uh, suicide is one of the things that they may be contemplating. So it's important to bring people like Jeff to the table today to talk about this and to talk about the resources that are available for everybody. Later in the show, we're going to be checking in with Maida Rosenstein. Maida is the director of organizing for Local 2110 of the United Auto Workers. Website, real simple, 2110uaw.org. And uh, she is going to talk about the big win for workers at the Brooklyn Museum, where they voted recently, overwhelmingly, I might add, to ratify their first contract. And this was a day before they were planning to go on strike. The strike date was earlier this month, uh, November 8th. The, uh, the union had been in negotiations for a first contract since January of 2022. Can you believe that? Almost two years. And they held repeated protests at the museum over its low-wage offer and unfair labor practices. So they got a new contract. It's three and a half years. It'll boost pay by over 23% over the life of the contract, raising minimum pay rates and guaranteeing annual increases. The contract also reduces the employee's share of health premium costs, expands eligibility for health care benefits to part-time staff, averaging 20 hours per week and establishes an annual $50,000 set aside for professional development. That's a lot. That's a lot. And we'll talk about uh, how they were able to uh, accomplish this. Boy, talk about frustration. That was a long time to reach this deal. The great thing about this, there's a lot of museums that are organizing right now, and the UAW is on the forefront of the organizing of those museums because you, you talk about low pay. And during the pandemic, these museums were shut down. Workers had a hard time trying to make ends meet, so uh, now's the time. I mean, it's been a great year. It's been a great year getting contracts, especially for the UAW, for the Teamsters, SAG-AFTRA, the writers. I mean, it was, I think, all together. Uh, CNN did a story on this recently, and they compiled, I think, 900,000 people got contracts this year when you add all that up. And it's still underway. I mean, we might hit a million here by the end of the year. It's amazing. Just amazing what's going on. So Maida Rosenstein, on behalf of UAW 2110, will be joining us later in the show. Now, brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. New polling data shows that a majority of voters across partisan lines, that's important, support the creation of a federal paid leave program. The polling was done by Lake Research Partners. They found that 85% of voters in battleground states favor paid leave. Controlling for party affiliation, the number breaks down to 96% of Democrats, 82% of independents, and 76% of Republicans who support paid leave. Now, currently, this is still hard to believe. The United States is the only industrialized country that does not mandate paid parental or sick leave for workers. You go to Europe, Australia, they all have paid parental leave. And here's the problem. 
This disproportionately harms low-income workers and workers of color who are less likely to receive paid leave from their employers. Think about those in retail and restaurants. And there's been a number of efforts to pass paid leave legislation in Congress that have gone nowhere. So it's another example of what the people want. They're not getting from their elected representatives. Meanwhile, according to the New York Times, the percent of women in the U.S. who are working for pay is at a record high. Although there are significant race and income-based disparities. Today, 77.7% of women ages 25 to 54 are employed, which is a new high. That percent reached 77% in the 1990s and then stalled. Economists attribute the difference with peer countries to the lack of government policies like paid leave and subsidized child care, as well as employers' expectations of availability at all hours. The increase is especially notable among mothers of children under five. Experts identified several factors contributing to the increase. For people with office jobs, the availability of remote work and the increased flexibility of when and where work gets done has been very influential. In addition, changes that make it easier or more attractive for mothers to enter the labor market include pandemic-era expansions of paid leave and child care subsidies, a tight labor market, inflation, and throw in cultural changes that mean women are investing more time in their careers. However, those increases have not been reflected by women who don't have the option to work from home. Women with less education, lower income women, those who are Latino or unmarried, were all identified as groups who are more likely to have jobs that cannot be done remotely. Now, these factors mean that mothers with young children and a high school diploma or less, fewer are working today than in the year before the pandemic. Not by much. It was 54% compared to before the pandemic of 56%. The National Labor Relations Board has dismissed a case filed by Workers United, which had claimed that Tesla illegally fired employees for union organizing efforts. Now, the union had alleged that Tesla fired dozens of workers from its autopilot department in Buffalo, New York, after the workers announced a union campaign. Well, in response, Tesla claimed that the terminations were based on routine performance reviews, not union-related activity. Although the Labor Board dismissed the case, it found merit to claims that Tesla had violated labor law in other ways. Now, If the parties do not settle on those remaining claims, the Labor Board will issue a complaint against Tesla to be heard by an administrative law judge. Workers United has also announced that it will seek a reversal of the case's dismissal from the General Counsel's Office of Appeals. Now, Tesla, mind you, has become the major target of union organizing efforts, especially in light of union successes with the big three automakers this year. UAW President Sean Fain has been explicit about his vision of organizing workers at Tesla, which is a sentiment backed by President Biden. However, the NLRB's dismissal of the case in Buffalo signals another obstacle for labor organizing efforts at the company. And as we reported last week, the Fifth Circuit Court, which is a very conservative court, recently held that Tesla's ban 
on union apparel did not violate labor law, sidestepping an NLRB decision to the contrary. All right, quick break. When we come back, we're going to tell you all about the SAFE project, the fight against opioid addiction. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to uh, line number one and welcome to the show Jeff Horvitz. Jeff is the... Chief Executive Officer of an organization called The Safe Project, website safeproject.us. It's all about fighting the battle of addiction. Over 100,000 Americans lose their lives to overdoses each and every year. And I know there's a lot of organizations that are fighting that. And we've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of months dealing with people, especially in the trades, because it's like uh, three to four times higher in the trades. You think about uh, injuries. You think about isolation, especially during the holidays, and that's why we have Jeff on the show. Jeff Horvitz, welcome to uh, America's Workforce. Thanks for uh, for joining us today. And I was reading your bio, very impressed with your background here. What really got my attention, general counsel 
of the White House Military Office. How <laughs> how did you arrive there? That's that's pretty impressive. Well, uh, thanks, Ed, and thanks for having me here. I I uh, I just have to say I just fell into it. I served on active duty for 28 years. Uh, I was a, an attorney by training, and as life went on, I just promoted uh, and had some wonderful experiences. When I was about to retire, the opportunity came up at the White House, and the Navy competed, and for the very first time, the Navy received the position. It's a great uh, position, great opportunity, great visibility, and a lot of uh, stress. But at the end of the day, it gave me an opportunity to work with uh, an organization called WAMO, the White House Military Office. And within WAMO, uh, I was the, the senior attorney that ran and made uh, legal advice and recommendations and legal decisions based upon what we were doing with military support that was helping to keep the president and the White House going. And what time period and which presidents did you did you work under during that time? I was selected to serve there in 2011, and I retired from the Navy in 2014. And so it was right. Uh, I was selected during the Obama administration and then the re-election uh, campaign for President Obama. Wow. What an interesting time. How cool. Very, very cool stuff there. Well, congratulations on uh, achieving that status. So, okay, talk to me about the SAFE project. You go from the White House military office, and then you join the SAFE project, which which happened about five years ago. Explain that part to me, Jeff. You bet. I I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I got out of the Navy, but my life and my focus has always been somewhat mission-driven. So I, I tooled around a little bit with different opportunities, and then in 2017, uh, some uh, folks that I knew while I was on active duty as neighbors, I'd never actually worked for them. Uh, they had lost their son as a result of an overdose and started a new nonprofit. Uh, it just happened it was uh, Admiral James Winnefeld and his wife that had lost their son, and he had been the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the number two in the Department of Defense. And so when they were starting up their new pro- nonprofit to work on this, uh, I was asked if I would come assist. I thought maybe for a short period of time I would do that, and that was in 2018, and I haven't left yet. So give me the nuts and bolts of the program. I I know the website. I I was very impressed with what I saw, safeproject.us. Can you tell us uh, how it actually works, how it's helping people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, For starters, we we have probably, what folks probably need to understand is what we discovered with the Winnefeld's journey is that Addiction and mental health challenges can happen to anyone. They lost their son after uh, struggling with mental health challenges, after uh, going through treatment, and when he was in relapse or recurrence of his active addiction. And these are smart people. These are people that had a lot of control and um, a lot of means to help their son, and they depleted those means. Uh, Sandy Winnefeld was defending the country and fighting terrorism, and he couldn't save his son's life. And he realized at that point, that since he is so successful on active duty, what is wrong? And what we discovered, what was wrong is that we do things in individual silos and we don't share, we don't work with each other. And so Safe Project was built really on a collaborative model that says we need to build the village. We need to not just reduce the number of prescription drugs out there, but we need to fight to try to address the causes. We need to work together to find enough treatment and not just arrest away a problem. And we really need to get everybody to do that. And so Safe Project was created really to build that collaborative approach. And what we have done is we have uh, tried our very best to meet individuals where they are 
So we have a division that talks the talk uh, at colleges and universities called our Safe Campuses Division because what you say and how you say it to a college and university is very different than what you would say to others. We have one division that deals with communities, one division that deals with veterans, active duty members, their caregivers and their families, and one division that goes into workplaces. And that's where we do a lot of our work and that's what led us, you and I together today, we do a lot of our work in the construction industry because they're really struggling the most with the mental health challenges and the substance use. Well, let, let's start right there then. What, in your opinion, and you obviously, you've been at this for almost 10 years, what's the biggest barrier when it comes to addressing substance misuse and substance use disorder, especially in, in the trades, in the construction industry? I think the biggest barrier remains the biggest barrier that uh, slowed us down in construction on uh, suicide and everything else. It's just the stigma. Uh, folks are uh, afraid to admit a sign of weakness or what they perceive as weakness. They're afraid to appreciate the fact that these things will happen, that repetitive work uh, will actually cause injuries, and you can't medicate or uh, medicate away those injuries. If you have mental injuries that are not seen, uh, you need to find a way to share those and feel comfortable sharing those so that you can also deal with those directly without using coping mechanisms to address those. But I think stigma is really the biggest problem, not just in the trades, but really around the country. Uh, last year, 108,000 people died. That's 300 people a day uh, from overdoses that are purely um, preventable. And that's not even addressing the suicide side of the house. And so... We would never let that happen in our country uh, if it was something we could talk about. And so it's really stigma. Well, Jeff, if you don't mind, let, let's let's get into that a little bit deeper. Uh, you, you, you indicated that stigma is the major barrier. How do we how do we combat that right now? I mean, I, you, you kind of mentioned this. There's a group effort here. You do a lot of education in the field. But in in your role at the SAFE Project, where do we start? How do how do we attack this problem? I think. Uh, there's no perfect answer. Uh, what we try to do at Safe Project is a couple things. The first thing is to educate that it is okay and is acceptable to uh, to to have to to not be okay. Uh, the first thing what we really do is we really try to educate uh, individuals, whether it's the trades or otherwise, or other sources. We try to educate them that this is a problem, uh, that it does exist that it's not someone who is a, an addict or a junkie. When we're talking about substance use disorder, we're really talking about something that makes perfect sense um, in light of the need to really continue to work with the repetitive injuries that happen or from uh, the mental health challenges that really come from the workplace itself, uh, whether you have enough sick days to take some time off to deal with an injury, things like that and really try to encourage leadership to step up to the plate to talk about stigma. Uh, what we do know out in the country today is everyone has different uh, messages. And it wasn't until we went to the 988 message uh, on suicide that we started to begin to have a, a commonality where people were saying the same thing. So what we do at Safe Project is we encourage our partners to at least start saying the exact same thing. So we have a no shame pledge where we encourage folks to do it. I was with the Minnesota Construction Coalition yesterday and encouraged them all to take the same pledge of some sort, whether it's our pledge or other pledges, so that we can change the culture that everyone's talking the same thing, just like they're doing right now with 988 and turning that around. And so if we can accept that this is a problem, 
it's accept that it's not a sign of weakness and really start talking the talk at least uh, definitely at the leadership level, I, I think we can start to overcome this. Let me ask you this. Is there is there a lot of buy-in to what's going on right now? You mentioned being in Minnesota. I'm just wondering, I, I would imagine there's a lot of locals out there that, that probably need your help. Is that conversation, is that happening right now? It, it really is. There's a lot of buy-in, and unfortunately, um, the reason for the buy-in varies. Uh, the reason for the buy-in in the construction industry in some cases are that there are folks on the site realizing that uh, they're at grave risk. There's a struggle with the workforce. Um, it could be that there's just someone who actually appreciates the numbers. The Center for Disease Control announced in August of this year that the number of construction workers that overdose, uh, construction and extraction workers, are 162 per 100,000 nationwide. And construction alone is in the 130s. And the norm is about 40s or 50s for most trades. Uh, four years ago in the construction industry, it was 60. So it's gone from 60 to 161. So maybe it's the loss of the workforce. Maybe it's the sheer rawness of the numbers. Maybe it's the struggle for insurance companies or to get the insurance you need. Uh, but all of that putting together um, have at least led people to appreciate that this is worth a discussion. And as you discuss this and as folks are more comfortable about this being a challenge that needs to be addressed, people are coming forward and, and admitting their own prior addiction uh, and sharing their stories or admitting their current problems and challenges and getting themselves into treatment so that they can be in recovery and back to the workforce in the best, uh, the best way possible. Jeff, you mentioned earlier that uh, one of the groups that you work with is uh, veterans. And, and I know veteran suicide is it's somewhere between like 17 to 20 vets commit suicide each and every day. Now, you probably know that there's a lot of vets in the trades, helmets to hard hats, great program yes. where they take, uh, yeah, they take military members and they get them involved in the trades because it's just, a, it's a great fit and, and it's been going on for years. I'm just wondering, that population, the vets that are in the trades, is it even worse for them? Do we have any data on that right now, to your knowledge? Well, we have data on vets, and we have data on the trades, but we don't have data on vets in the trades. Uh, our programming, and Helmet Style Hard Hats is a phenomenal program, uh, and we've worked with them. Um, uh, but I don't know if they have the statistics of vets in the trades, but what we do know is uh, that the training path that Helmets to Hard Hats and others do to get veterans transitioned and find that connection that they lost when they left active duty is superb. We do know that veterans who do not have that connection really struggle, and we know that veterans are two times more likely to overdose and two times more likely to uh, attempt suicide than uh, their counterparts uh, in, in the general public. Uh, the trouble is that you need to learn and understand how to talk to a veteran, and that's what Helmets to Hard Hats does. That's what our veterans portfolio does, and that is um, uh, they were trained to never admit that there's a drug problem, never to admit that there's a weakness, just like the construction industry in many ways. And so our programming for that that supplements some of the work that Helmets to Hard Hats does works on wellness and works on trying to find your true best self and understand that you've got to take care of yourself and not only the person to the left or the right of you. Um, and uh, I think when you take that type of training together with the great work of 
transitioning folks and building that connection with other veterans so that veterans can talk to veterans as they're working in the workplace, uh, that's, that's, that's money in the bank. Jeff Horitz joining us on our live line today is chief executive officer of a very, very good organization. It's called the Safe Project. Let me drive you to the website. It's Safe Project, all one word, dot U.S. And if you know somebody, have a family member, a veteran, somebody in the construction industry that's suffering from addiction, that's definitely an organization you should get in touch with, safeproject.us. We'll continue with Jeff later in the show. Got another win for the UAW. It's a Brooklyn Museum. Maida Rosenstein, who is the director of organizing at that local, which is 2110. She'll be joining us later in the show. Back in a few minutes. Again, you're listening to America's Workforce. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Are you an experienced mechanical insulator looking to take your career to the next level? Insulators Local 50 in Central Ohio has steady work for a number of years. Insulators Local 50 offers a total wage and benefits package that can't be beat. It's not just the competitive wages. Local 50 also provides medical, vision, and dental insurance with no paycheck deductions for you and your family. Don't miss out on the chance to secure your future. Join us at Insulators Local 50. Earn great pay and the best benefits. Visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF50 to fill out the online form and a Local 50 representative will call to begin the process. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go back to our live line. Rejoin Jeff Horvitz, who is a chief executive officer for the Safe Project. We're talking about addiction. We're talking about workplaces. And we've done several shows over the last couple of months about the problem with substance abuse and the suicide rate in the trades. And uh, Jeff has been working on that with the safe project for, for almost 10 years now. If, if you don't mind, let, let's talk about um, substance misuse at home. I mean, we got to cover that as well. I mean, you're working eight, nine, 10 hours a day. So, you know, obviously with overtime 
And this, a lot of times people come home, they got to have a beer, and then God knows what else is going to happen. And perhaps the next day you're not going to be very sharp going into work. But I mean, that's part of the whole picture here. Uh, does, does the safe project, I, I know you're, you're very comprehensive. I'm once wondering what's the, um, what's the MO when it comes to uh, substance abuse at home? How do we handle that? So Ed, there's lots of ways we can address it by education. Uh, in the workplace, if it's not affecting them in the workplace, there's still a problem at home, especially with substance use. Um, and the example that you're providing or the drugs that you're receiving. The biggest problem that we deal with right now in the home is the uh, leftover and excess of drugs that are in the home that were prescribed to folks. What we know today is about 92% of drugs that are prescribed by physicians are not used. And all those drugs that are not used are sitting in the medicine cabinets at home. About 70% of households have those and it's the number one pharmacy for teenagers. Teenagers will readily admit that they have experimented with drugs and that they've experimented out of the medicine cabinet because it's a prescription drug and they assume that it's safe. Uh, but what we also know is that they're not necessarily safe. They're not safe if they're not taken as prescribed. And we know that someone can be addicted to an opioid in as little as three days. We know that this is also a gateway for kids to find Adderall or something like that that's making them um, perceive that they're better in their academics and such, and that's then leading to folks purchasing things on the open market. So we do a lot to try to educate folks that the risk in the medicine cabinet, the risk at home. There are in-home uh, disposal products that we can use and that people can buy. We've encouraged uh, workforces to distribute to their folks, uh, to their employees, uh, maybe if they have an EAP to make it part of the EAP, so that these pouches that could be as little as 99 cents to as high as $5, depending on the size and the type, can allow you to take the drugs when you are not, uh, when you're done using drugs, when they're not going to be, when they're unused or when they've expired. You just put the, put the medication into a bottle or into a pouch, add water, and you can throw it in your home garbage can. Uh, we know that uh, Americans are pretty lazy, and if they have to wait till twice a year um, to do a DEA take-back day, they're not doing it. But if you can give them a way to destroy drugs at home so that they keep them out of the use of, of others so it's not a gateway, um, that's what we really like to do. So we've, we've done that, uh, and then what we really uh, try our very best to do is make resources available for folks that are overusing or abusing substances while they're at home, make resources available, whether it's treatment, whether it's education in schools with youth and young adults, uh, or education throughout the community to do that. So clean out that medicine cabinet. Good advice there. Real good advice. You know, while, while we're talking about drugs here, I have a couple of questions, especially you may hear a lot about fentanyl, which, which can kill you. Here's what I don't understand. In the mind of the drug pusher, you know, lacing drugs. I mean, this, this is relatively new back in probably in the 60s and 70s. You didn't hear about this kind of thing but you're lacing a drug with something that can kill you. Why would somebody want to do that? Wouldn't they want that person to come back and buy more drugs? That's the part I don't understand. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a little complicated, uh, but it really boils down to two things. The first one is the, the seller needs to know their client, their client, and their client is looking for the next true best high, the, the, the best high they can get, 
and fentanyl uh, will assist them in getting to that high. The opioid and drug addiction does some crazy things to your brain, and it changes your brain. The logical answers aren't there. And so if you can put fentanyl in there and mix it up, and that's what we're finding is uh, multiple drug uses or different types of drugs is, is, uh, is where the pathway is going right now. But the second step of that is even more interesting, and that is that the drug dealers are also just simple capitalists. And they are using fentanyl because fentanyl is cheap. It's very inexpensive. A small amount can create an incredible high, and a small amount can actually kill you. And they are mixing up their drugs, not in laboratories, but in cement mixers. And so some pills will have a lot of fentanyl in it. Some pills will have a little bit of fentanyl in it. But it's sure a lot cheaper for them to use fentanyl than it is for them to use uh, pure heroin or cocaine or something like that. And so as a result, they're making money, and it's capitalism in the drug trade. Wow. Okay, another question here. Naloxone. We've been hearing a lot about that. And this is, uh, I guess it's now available over the counter and it's been very effective in in helping people what's your what's your opinion on this drug naloxone is essential it's uh it should be on the workplace and the workplaces it should be available at your home and individuals should carry it if they can Uh, naloxone and what is now over the counter is narcan which is a nasal spray it is harmless uh what it does is uh, if someone has overdosed, they are the opioids are blocking their receptors in the brain and telling them not to breathe anymore. And Narcan, the nasal spray, will immediately knock those opioids off and protect your your receptors for up to 30 minutes. And there uh, is you're literally saving a person's life the minute you squeeze that nar- Narcan into their nostrils. It, it is that simple. Now, you call, need to call 911. There's a training evolution you go to, but the bottom line is if there is someone there who has overdosed and you can provide them with Narcan, you can get them to start breathing again and save their life. And the only way that you'll be able to tr- get them treatment, the only way that you'll be able to save them is to release those, uh, the opioids from the receptors and to do it that way. What we have found, though, is that folks are afraid of using Narcan or naloxone because they think there's a danger to it. And the truth is there's no danger. There's no hazard to it. So if you're mistaken and someone is struggling with a heart attack but they're not breathing and you think that it might be an overdose and you spray the Narcan, there's no harm, no foul. There's no danger associated with that, uh, that mistake. You're still calling 911. You're still getting the paramedics there, uh, and you're still doing the same training that you've done in order to address heart attacks or things like that. Um, and so in the end, we encourage folks to have uh, Narcan on the work site, and we encourage folks to have Narcan in their cars or on their cells. I, I travel with it all the time, and thank God I haven't run into a situation where I've needed it. But it's easy to get uh, in most communities for your home. You can get it for free. Um, if you want to have it in the workplace, you probably have to purchase it, and we can help folks find it for free or purchase it if they want it. All right, a lot of this information that Jeff is talking about is available on the website safeproject.us, safeproject.us. Jeff, uh, we have to button it up here. Um, I'm just going to throw it out to you. If anybody listening right now, we have a pretty broad audience. We're in the top 1% of all podcasts in the world right now. The show has had incredible growth over the year, and uh, we get a lot from the trades. Uh, best advice that you can give, they should contact you, if they, especially you would come to the, the local or maybe some kind of a regional meeting. 
Can that all be arranged through, uh, through you? Absolutely. My email address is jeff at safeproject.us. If they don't remember it or don't want to do it that way, we have a contact us page. We would be happy to talk to anyone or to find local community coalitions or support to help them uh, learn and educate their folks on what's, what to do. Uh, and the only advice I would give is this is a problem. This is a crisis. And it won't go away by not working on it and dealing with it. So we can sit down with you all. We can help you. We can encourage you. But in the end, if we can fight stigma by being united, whether it's through the Safe Project No Shame Pledge or some other means, where you can show, where leaders can show their workforce that they care, we know that the workforce will speak up. But if you just pass it on to somebody else or you try to ignore that difficult conversation, it's not going away. And the numbers have risen astronomically, especially in the construction arena. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming to the table today. Jeff at safeproject.us. That's his email. And the website is safeproject.us. You take care. Stay safe. Let's uh, let's talk again in the new year. Can we do that? Absolutely, Ed. Thanks for having me. It's it's great. And I'm, I'm thrilled to see how well you guys are doing. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, another win for the UAW, the Brooklyn Museum, Maida Rosenstein, Director of Organizing, coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting iwdistrictcouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, Canada and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craftworkers. For more information, please visit BACweb.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. 
They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Well, as I indicated at the top of the show, it's been a banner year for the UAW, especially with that contract with the Big Three. But also, we got to salute Local 2110, where workers at the Brooklyn Museum voted overwhelmingly to ratify their first contract. And that happened a couple of weeks ago. Maida Rosenstein is the director of organizing. Hey, Maida, welcome back to America's Workforce. Uh, you got to be a pretty happy camper. Great year for the UAW, right? It has been a great year, and it's been a great year for Local 2110 as well, a great couple of years because we've been doing an enormous amount of organizing and um, we and have been able to uh, win some great uh, first union contracts, including the one most recent one at, at the Brooklyn Museum. And you've seen a lot over the years. We should point out that Meta is a 40-year union member she's vice president president of that local and now director of organizing they have about uh, five thousand members in the new york new england area doing a lot of organizing in uh, connecticut massachusetts and maine but let's focus on the brooklyn museum and i know the uaw has been very very proactive organizing at museums and i i think the pandemic you know cast a lot of light on so many different things but uh, museum workers were just not treated very well so explain to me what you had to do to push this over the finish line it's all yours well i yeah well first of all i have to say you know we had a great uh negotiating committee at the brooklyn um we won an election uh back in 2021 i guess it was um very very overwhelmingly um very strong support um for for unionizing um you know by over 90 percent margin um, and we started negotiating, uh, you know, at the beginning of 2022, and uh, just uh, the museum was just incredibly difficult, and people were struggling with very low-paid salaries, uh, and you know, really had to make uh, changes. So uh, we had a very active campaign with, you know, over this period of time with multiple. Um, you know, demonstrations, rallies, leaflets, you know, et cetera. Uh, in the, in the uh, summer, uh, we took a strike authorization vote, uh, went back to the table to try to, uh, you know, push the museum. Ultimately, we set a strike deadline um, for uh, early November, and at that point, we were able to bring the negotiations um, through and uh, actually actually get a, a settlement, and it's a great settlement. Um, and I'm very proud of the membership there. They're completely new to a union, but they um, fought really hard through you know over a two-year period. They were uh, you know 
like very you know patient and understanding that you know we had to do this step by step and um and push hard over over time um and you know they deserve every penny they got in the contract i saw on the website uh, some of the details 23 percent raise over the life of the contract raising minimum pay rates guaranteeing annual increases um, yes. I also see employers are going to share more in the health premium costs, expand eligibility for health care benefits to part time. Any of these. Yes. I mean, there, there was a lot of parts to this. Which one was probably the most difficult, in your opinion, to get to, to get done? The compensation, you know, at the end, the wage, the wage increases, um, the, you know, the museum, you know, had a bad history of, you know, uh, not giving uh, regular increases to people, very, very low um, minimum increases and, uh, you know, low pay rates to begin with. Um, we had professional employees that were making under 50000 when when this started or in the low 50s, and we were able to significantly, you know, increase those rates. So that was very, very difficult. But the other thing that was a problem with the museum was they really didn't ever <laughs> accept the idea that they that there was a union and that they would have to engage in true collective bargaining. Um, and so uh, they wanted, uh, you know, to take credit for everything, you know, any any move that they made in our direction, they would act as if they had done it on their own. We had multiple unfair labor practice charges filed during this this campaign because they made unilateral changes without bargaining with the union. Um, you know, they uh, you know took many, many positions out of the union union. So all of those things were, you know, the whole tenor of the bargaining was also um, difficult and we had to, you know, we had to contend with that at the end. And I think um, we hope that there'll be a real reset in the in the relationship to begin with 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 the museum, so that um, you know uh, there's you know uh, going to be a good collective bargaining relationship going forward. Well, I would assume so because I see the contract also establishes a joint labor management committee along with the grievance procedure, binding arbitration, layoff protection, health and safety committee. So it, it, I know this was not easy to accomplish, but uh, again, it took a long time, almost two years to, to get it done. This is good. So now that this is uh, done and behind you, and, and, and congratulations, I, I've been watching what's been going on with the UAW in so many aspects, obviously with the big three and you know that contract that uh, that took a while to accomplish, but other museums, I notice there's a lot of other museums that, that, that are wanting union representation. Um, yeah. Going into the new year, what's what's the game plan here, Maida? Well, first of all, we, we're, we're uh, you know, we've had a wave of museum negotiations, of museum organizing in the last few years, you know, and spurred by the pandemic, but even before then by, like, tremendous wage inequality in museums where um, often museum leadership, you know, are paid very high, uh, receive very high compensation, 
you know, a, a considerable chunk of the money. The museum boards of trustees are composed of, uh, you know, same billionaire class that the UAW has to deal with at GM and Ford uh-huh. um, and Stellantis. You know, those people sit on the boards of museums and universities as well. And so, um, you know, there there's just been museum workers uh, are, I think, you know, fed up with uh, very low salaries. Um, and, uh, you know, during the pandemic, layoffs and furloughs and cutbacks. Um, and people are organizing in response, um, you know, to try to, uh, you know, change the landscape. And so there's been, you know, a whole wave of museum and university organizing as well um, that is really, um, uh, you know, shifting, you know, shifting ground. Um, and um, Local 2110, we had long uh, included um uh, workers at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and so a lot of people, you know, in museums came to us and and um, uh, came to our local and wanted to organize, and and we have um, continued to do so. So um, we are still, we have another, we're working on a contract at the Dia Foundation of of the Arts, and um, you know, we will have then done a whole have. Uh, organized and negotiated contracts for about 15 different museums um, and we hope to continue organizing you know in in this field um, and uh, you know and and see that spread throughout uh, the country as well well it's been a wonderful year for unions as I mentioned I think 900,000 people this year got contracts and the UAW is a big part of that throw in the Teamsters, throw in SAG after the Writers Guild, and obviously the workers at uh, 2110 UAW Brooklyn Museum. So congratulations to you and your team. Let's stay in touch in the new year. Can we do that, Maida? We absolutely can, and uh, I hope the new year will be a great one um, for the labor you. movement and for the country. <laughs> we got to keep it going, no doubt about that. Yes. All right, that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, the Ironworkers and the story of the Christmas tree. And labor artist Zach Horn will be joining us. Until then, all of you, have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.